0: Hi, I'm Jared Fuller, welcome to Scratching the Surface. started getting interested in design and art, the work that I was drawn to was the work that made me feel something. Maybe I was excited by its aesthetic sensibilities, or maybe it was the content or the message embedded in it. I didn't know most of the time why I was attracted to the things that I was. I certainly didn't know anything about art or design history and was unable to contextualize or make sense of them on some theoretical level. All I knew was that it changed something in me. It was something that excited me in some way. But over the years, I sometimes feel like I lost... That sensibility that after studying theory and history and philosophy and after working as a designer and writing about design, I sometimes forget to check in on how something makes me feel because I feel that impulse to theorize it, to contextualize it, to historicize it. Why can't I just like something because I like something? I found myself thinking about this a lot while I was reading Helen Molesworth's new book, Open Questions, 30 Years of Writing About Art. Helen is one of our foremost art critics and curators, but what struck me the most reading this new collection was how deftly she could move from thinking to feeling, from theory to pleasure, from the political to the personal. Open Questions collects essays, profiles, and criticism that Helen has published over her 30 years in the art world. From 2014 to 2018, she was chief curator of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, and she previously held stints as curator at ICA Boston, the Baltimore Museum of Art, and the Harvard University Art Museums. In 2022, she hosted the six-part narrative podcast, Death of an Artist, which was produced by Pushkin Studios that looked at the death of the Cuban-American artist Anna Mendieta, who is the wife of sculptor Carl Andre. She's curated shows on Black Mountain College, Kara James Marshall, Ruth Asawa, and others. What I think you'll find, though, is that the title of her new book, Open Questions, is a fitting description of her career. That there are a set of questions that animate her work that she's still working through 30 years later. And that's why I wanted to have her on the show today. And it's where we begin this conversation, discussing the questions that guide her work and this move between the thinking and the feeling in her writing. We also talk about how writing has shaped her curatorial sensibilities and how she thinks about structuring an exhibition like writing an essay. This conversation took us into some really fascinating places, helping me think through the questions that guide my own work. If you like this episode and what we do here at Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon supporters get bonus interviews, full transcripts, and an exclusive monthly newsletter, all while helping to keep this show free for everyone all the time. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and help support the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. And here is my conversation with Helen Molesworth. I want to start by talking about this new book that you have, Open Questions, 30 Years of Writing About Art. And the book is called Open Questions. And your intro to the book is about sort of how you approach writing as a way of thinking, as a way of trying to understand what you think about something. It is a way of asking questions. And I'm wondering as you were putting this book together, as you were sort of thinking about your writing, your questions over the last 30 years, what questions were you asking when you started? What questions were you asking 30 years ago that you're still asking now? Are there through lines there through the, the these last three decades?
1: Yes, and thank you, You know, thank you, Jarrett, for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it for being interested in the work. Yes, I think that there are a set of questions that are through lines or some of them have gotten answered maybe. And and in the answering, some of them opened on to other questions. I mean, when I first started, I was very, very obsessed with all things ready-made. It seemed to me that the force of Duchamp's urinal become fountain was a kind of cataclysmic reorganizing of the category of art. And I was, I was entranced by it, but that makes it sound like I understood it from a theoretical vantage point first. I didn't. <laughs> um, what I was and who I remain is someone who is profoundly pricked into a kind of heightened states of awareness, feeling, and thinking in relationship to the object world. Mm so i realized at a certain point that i could fall down the rabbit hole of looking at a light fixture and that there and that there were lots of people who were not like that yeah. <laughs> and so that quality of the made thing that people make things and that they have lives and for me those things are often a bit animistic. Uh-huh. Uh, I have a animistic turn of mind, and so the object world was enthralling to me. I'm also a very covetous person, mm. and so I covet things, <laughs> I like things, pottery, fancy clothes, beautiful glassware, silverware, flowers, candles. I'm someone who is very enamored of and turned on by the haptic, the tactile, the visual. Right. right. I take enormous, I'm a fetishist. Basically. I'm an object fetishist. And so Duchamp's perfect for a girl like me. And so (laughs) those questions were, were really profound. So what started out is me just trying to understand why I was someone who loved window shopping, who was someone who loved to go into a store and touch everything. Then, you know, I graduated to the ontological category of art that is profoundly destabilized by Duchamp's ready-mades, right? And then those categories, once art is destabilized and taste gets put on the table, then you've got to start talking about the how and the why and the politics of of taste. And once I got into that register, then there's women, in mm-hmm. the history of feminism. And then once I started to understand the political ways in which, or, or rather the historical ways in which the field of art history in the museum had been constructed in and through colonialism and whiteness, then those questions of taste become all the more... Mm-hmm dramatically political and so there is in there I think a pretty strong through line of my own questions and how they've evolved over the past three decades
0: the book is structured sort of interestingly because it's sort of it's mostly chronological not exactly but mostly written in order and then it's also thematic but then there's also this sort of blurriness to (laughs) to the sections you know uh themes come up again in different sections or topics or artists come up again, which is sort of why I asked you that first question. And I'm, I wonder how aware of those through lines were you before you started putting this book together? And then sort of the sub-question is, were there new through lines that you found as you went back and read all of this stuff? And you're like, oh, this thing that I thought I was interested in here, there's actually a seed of that. 10 years earlier
1: I think that's definitely a both and kind of answer to that (laughs) question because I certainly I mean I set it up thematic and chronological because it seems to me that is in some ways a fundamental antinomy of curatorial life Mm. which is how are you going to put those things in those Mm -hmm. rooms Mm -hmm. are you going to do it in order in the order in which they were made or are you going to do it uh about the way in which they are involved in asking similar questions. So theme versus chronology, although I always try to shy away from theme, and because for me, the there was a guy named William Peets who wrote a set of essays in the 90s in a in a small journal. Uh, and he did a whole thing about fetishism. He comes up with this idea of the problem idea, which for me was a way to get out of the thematic.
0: Mm.
1: However, I do think that theme and chronology are the primary antinomies of curatorial life. And so you see me trying to both (laughs) and that in the structure of the book, the artists that return is actually, I think due to a personal predilection. I'm very loyal and I also didn't, not think it was my job, even though it accurately describes the job of contemporary curator, I didn't think it was my job to only be concerned with the new. Mm. So one of the things I was interested in was identifying bodies of work made by artists that I thought asked profound and searching questions And then I decided to stick with those folks and to see what happened if you stuck with people over the duration. What kind of conversation could you have? And so that certainly meant I was adding in new people along the way because new people were popping up. But I wasn't someone in the museum space focused on the new as such, as many of my peers were and many of them i rely heavily on them because they're out there doing that kind of r d and i was not i was doing something different so i think lots of things conspired for me to have the same you know a a a set of concerns and then also you know honestly i i think i've probably only had four or five ideas (laughs) and i've been nursing them and I don't know. I guess I've been okay with that. You know, most people yeah. actually don't have a lot of ideas. Most people have a set of ideas that they return to because knowledge and thought and feeling are yeah. fundamentally recursive
0: yeah. and iterative
1: yeah. rather than progressive.
0: I, I mean, it's it's selfishly so nice to hear you say that because I've thought that about myself many times. I'll sit down to, you know, somebody will ask me to write something about something and all of a sudden i'm like wait a minute i've written a version of this This is a whole this is the same idea and i'm just writing it in a different context using different examples and it's like oh, i'm just asking the same question i mean this is what we were talking about before i started we started recording about sort of the the origins of this show um i mean it's interesting to me to hear you say that and just think one of my favorite parts of of the new book uh were these postscripts that you put at the end of, not every essay, but many of the essays where you're sort of looking back on them and contextualizing them, you know, sort of saying like what you would do a little bit differently, what you still stand by. Um, and was that sort of a way to do that thing, to sort of make those connections, to, to show, you know, how you were thinking about something then and how it has evolved and and stuck with you tell me tell me about the decision to include those postscripts i guess is the question i'm asking
1: well that decision came from two places one is a very powerful experience i had in my 20s reading the british art historian and critic cabana mercer who Hmm at the time was working in the UK, but today is working at Yale. And Cabana had written an essay on Mapplethorpe's black book, which is mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the listeners who don't know, you know, very famous and somewhat iconic and incendiary book of photographs that Mapplethorpe who was white and gay had taken of black gay men who came to his studio to take their picture. Mm-hmm. They're extremely explicit images. And they traffic in a variety of tropes, some of which are stereotypical and some of which are are, are tropes. And he kind of slammed it. And there was a way in which it deserved and needed to be critiqued very harshly. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, he wrote another essay. And he said, I know I slammed it, mm. but... In slamming it, I left out my desire. Mm. I left out a way of looking that was much more vulnerable and much more personal than a kind of classic academic critique. And when I saw Cobb and Mercer do that, that really shaped me as a young thinker. Yeah. Because I thought, oh, I mean, it meant a couple of things, one of which was very straightforward. You could be wrong and it could be okay, which gave me a sense of freedom in how I could write. But even more so, you could be right twice and both things could counteract each other, Right. Right? right? That you were allowed to change. And even more so, more so than the kind of narcissistic centering of the author changing, the world could change. So those pictures mean one thing pre HIV AIDS and they mean something else during HIV AIDS crisis and post the HIV AIDS crisis. And that meant that meaning really was contextual that you didn't, that works of art didn't, were not in fact timeless works of art were always timely
0: right
1: and that just was very very powerful for me and then the second thing that happened is when donna wingate who's the editor of this volume this book was her idea and at first i could not imagine it and she encouraged me to read Adrienne rich's book of collected essays because when she did a collected volume of her essays she also engaged in some Monday morning quarterbacking,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so between Cobb and Mercer's early blowing of my mind, but it was really the Adrian Rich. I felt like, oh, okay, there's a tradition, and I can try to aim toward that space. I can write myself, hopefully, into a space like that. And that those that's the reason those two people and those two experiences are why I wrote the way I did.
0: And when when did you read those? When did the Maplethorpe uh, critiques? That was the '90s, you said.
1: That's the '90s. Yeah, I mean that's like '89, '90, '91, '92, somewhere in there. And Audreyn yeah. Rich was—I um, mean, she's been a mainstay, of course, but it was really. I reread the essays and her reframing of her essays in preparation for working with Donna on this book.
0: It's so interesting to hear you say that because (laughs) that was exactly where I was going to take this conversation. I was really interested in sort of this... I don't know if I want to call it tension necessarily this this uh, exchange this overlap between the theoretical and the emotional or the 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 thinking and the feeling and even when you're talking about being a Duchamp girl and that like you didn't have the the sort of theoretical understanding of it but it did something to you and that comes up again and again in your work this sort of move between the theoretical and the feeling and I'm I'm wondering how you negotiate that, and if how 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 your way of engaging with art has evolved towards, you know, towards the feeling. I mean, you 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 went through, uh, you know, you you have a PhD, you did the Whitney ISP Pro, you you have all that theory. How do you bring the feeling back in, and how do you how do you let those sort of dance with each other?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean. God, how do I bring the feeling back in? I don't think I ever didn't have the feeling. I think that (laughs) quality that in a way I was describing in the beginning of my own personhood from the time I was a small person. Mm -hmm. My entrancement with the object world. So the feeling was always there. And then I learned that there was this really remarkable set of texts that were theoretical that helped one figure out what was happening in the world, uh, whether it's you know the history of Marxism or mm-hmm. the Frankfurt School. I read a lot of psychoanalysis mm-hmm. that was extremely important. It seemed to me was all about feeling. Yeah. yeah yeah. um marxism is essentially i I mean it's many things but one of the things it is is a desperately accurate account of alienation and alienation is a feeling (laughs) and it's a feeling i have daily uh you know i feel profoundly alienated from my culture so those texts weren't anodyne or objective for me. They felt like texts that were about people who were looking at the world and being in the world and trying to figure out how the world worked Mm. so that you could possibly make it better. Um, I mean, I have that cast of mind And I have, you know, many feelings about having that cast of mind, Um, you know, because it it can border on the missionary and that is some very problematic, (laughs) you know, like there's there's very little good comes of that nonsense. And yet I understand myself to be structured by profoundly deep ideas that you are, quote unquote, supposed to leave the world better than when you found it. And how could you possibly do that if you didn't understand how the world worked, why it worked the way it did, and what that meant for you as an individual? Like, I I don't know. I I didn't have a lot of trouble thinking all of that stuff simultaneously. (laughs) Certainly when I was in graduate school, I wrote for my advisors. I I wrote for the approbation of very few people. So I wrote in a certain way that's called school, you know, that's that's called a dissertation. I was very clear very early on that the dissertation was an exam. It was an exam Uh, I wanted uh, to pass. It was an exam I wanted to excel at. It was an arena of knowledge acquisition that I was very, very committed to. But it never occurred to me that I was going to publish my dissertation. Like I knew it was a a 300 word love letter to three people who were named and one person who wasn't. And that was that.
0: You're making me sort of reconsider the way that I asked that question. I don't mean to belabor this for a second because I I actually completely agree with what you said. And it makes me sort of, um, you know, rethink my phrasing a little bit because I was sort of asking that question, thinking about my own experience um, as somebody who came to graphic design In a similar way, you know, there were were pieces of design that made me feel something, that I liked Mm -hmm. them, you know, they Mm -hmm. excited me in some way. And then going through school, learning history, learning theory, studying philosophy, I started to see that work differently. And then there were different types of design work that interested me in some other way because I could see it connect to these ideas that I was learning in school. And then some of that other work that just was like... Cool, I was right. like, "Oh, there's there's nothing there." I still like that, but there's nothing. There's no there there in the way this other thing did. And I'm not saying either one of those is right or wrong, which I think is sort of what I was unintentionally asking. Now that I'm thinking about it, but I'm what was interesting to me is how sort of developing that that education, getting those different sets of tools, changed how I looked at the work. And I'm wondering, do you? How do you look at art differently today than you did? 30 years ago, or do you at all?
1: Oh uh no, I'm <laughs> certain I'm I mean, I must look at it differently. That'd be terrible not to. Um I think probably the biggest difference, I think there are two things that are different in how I look at art now from you know, this vantage point of being 57. Versus the 30 years ago, being in my 20s. (laughs) One is, I have seen art from the vantage point of the curator. The curator's Mm. job is to care for works of art. So, one of the things that that means, and this is very corny shit, but it's really true. One of the things that that means, is that i have seen art lying on the floor Mm. carried up and down stairs wrapped and unwrapped broken damaged in the conservation lab i've seen it in people's living rooms i have seen it in corporate boardrooms i've seen it everywhere i've seen it get loaded onto a cargo plane (laughs) you know what i mean like Yeah. yeah yeah have been up in arts business. Yeah. And before, and anyone who hasn't been in museum work or gallery work doesn't know all that stuff. They don't touch it. They don't turn it over. They don't see it out of the frame. They don't see it in all those different ways. They don't see it move around. They don't see it in Mrs. Who's what's living room and then see it on the museum wall. They, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. So, I started to take all of that very, very seriously. Yeah. There wasn't any way to leave that out. Uh I couldn't just pretend that what I saw was the JPEG on my computer screen or the <laughs> yeah. thing on yeah. the white wall after the lighting had been done. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I yeah. Yeah. I knew something about these things and I felt just so committed to the reality of that truth. I knew they were much messier and that they leak—they were leaking all the time. Yeah. So there yeah. was that. And then the other thing that I got to do as a museum curator, and this is an extraordinary privilege, extraordinary privilege, I traveled the world on the art world's dime. <laughs> Everywhere I went, yeah. I went to the General Museum. Right. So lots of my peers went to Vienna and they oh. went to every crazy queer sex club you could go to. <laughs> and I was at the front door of the Kunsthistorisches <laughs> at 10 a.m.
0: Right, right.
1: Walking through Old Master Galleries, testing the artwork from the 20th century that I loved against the artwork from the 15th to the 19th century over and over and over again. And I did that really v- religiously. And I think the religiously there, I mean, in all of its implications. Yep, yep, yep. I was I a supplement yeah. in the face of that work. I believed in that work. That was going to church for me. And those two things, I think, go a long way toward the how and the why of how I talk and write about art, and how I experience art.
0: Let's talk about curating for a little bit, because I think for a lot of people, at least from, you know, I'll speak for myself only, I sort of uh, knew you and came to your work through your curatorial work first, and part of this book You've described as a way to sort of re-identify yourself as a writer, or to sort of you know talk about the sort of uh, centrality of writing in in your work. There was a great New York Times profile on you last year, uh, where you where you talk about writing being you called it your secret sauce, um, and that you saw your curating as a form of writing. Uh, tell me about that. How was how is curation uh, t- a type of writing for you?
1: Well. I think when I entered the museum world, you know, I came as a young, newly PhD minted <laughs> art historian. And I think that art history as a discipline I find its primary medium to be the essay. Uh, uh-huh. There are many books but I never find them as good as the essays. I think there's something about...
0: <laughs> yes, I agree You with know, that. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think there's something about the essay. The essay is meandering, the essay privileges, the intellectual curiosity of the writer, and people who read essays also come to them understanding that there will be uh, a certain kind of uh, go-between, right? That, that, that you're mm. going to be watching one person bring their intelligence to bear on another right. person's intelligence. Right. And I was curious if I could do something essayistic in the museum space. It seemed to uh, me that me- most permanent collection installations were installed not as an essay, but as the truth. There yeah. was this, and then there's this, and then there's this, and then there's that. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's like literally the most boring form of art <laughs> that there is. Right. For sure. Right. That's Jansen. Yeah. So could I bring the the kind of essayistic quality that one found in Hal Foster or Tim Clark, or Anne Wagner, mm-hmm. Rosalind okay. Krauss. Like, could I bring that kind of voice and energy into the installation of art objects in the museum? So that's, that was literally from the jump in 2000 when I started working at the Baltimore Museum of Art. That was a very conscious game I was playing with mm-hmm. myself. Could I make an art historical argument with three-dimensional objects in space? Could I take the form of that argumentation and make it spatial? And could you? Yes, I thought you could. I thought you could. Um, Now, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I think that the shows that I'm most known for, and I also think when people complimented me on, you know, I'm known, and I think I'm known, or I was, I mean, I don't know what people think of my, curatorial work anymore because it's so far away now. But I think I was known as a good installer. And I yeah. think basically what people were saying was this shit makes sense. I right. understand that if you put this next to this, you're trying to get us to think about some stuff. Right. And I think that was essentially an essayistic move. That was a literary move. That right. wasn't only visual or only spatial. It also had discursive arrangements as well
0: yeah i mean i think i i think you're right and i think you know the the compliment that you are a good installer that's like um you know that's that's talking about your voice that's talking about your that's talking about your sentence structure you know that's talking about right. the sort of the flare in the in the writing where your your questions reveal themselves in some way it, it's so interesting t- t- to think about this because I'm somebody who writes a lot. I'm very interested in curation. I, I really only curated, you know, one or two shows. I find them, I find that act very challenging in a different way. And I think it's for what you just articulated is, is sort of my love of the essay form. How, how does curation as an essay versus curation as truth, just to sort of use your rough, language there. How does that change the approach when you are not searching for truth, but you're searching for questions, inquiry, arguments? Mm, Uh, mm. You know, how does that change how you install, how you select, how you arrange?
1: That's such a nice question. I wish someone had asked me that question 10, 20 years ago. (laughs) Uh, So, because it allows me to say what I did, but also allows me to make a little bit of passion plea against what I think happens in a lot of places. Mm, so yeah. because I had been thinking about organizing exhibitions as a form of essay writing, one of the things that that meant was I didn't need just any work by Robert Rauschenberg. Mm. Like it wasn't, Right. Stamp collecting, right? It wasn't proper name checking. I needed this Robert Rauschenberg. I needed yeah. this Sengen and Goody because I was going to play this Sengen and Goody off that Ava Hesse, <laughs> right.
0: right? Right. So right. it
1: wasn't that you know. I mean, whatever. Every museum would be lucky to have a Senga Ningudi and they would be lucky to be able to put it in a room with an Ava Hesse. But when I put Ningudi and Hessa in the room together, I was being very, very precise in what right. I was doing. And that's because I had been a writer and I had been trying to figure out the best word, the best phrase, mm-hmm. the most precise articulation of what it was I was seeing, thinking, feeling, questioning. Mm-hmm. And I have found, and this has only gotten worse since the, the rise of the art fair, is that a lot of museums, when you walk through them, what I feel is, here's our Frank Stella.
0: Right. Yep.
1: <laughs> you know, yep. here's our Kahende Wiley. Doesn't matter which Kahende Wiley. It's just important <laughs> that we have a Kahende Wiley. Right. right. And that way of thinking, to me, that's like an idea about truth. Right? right. That's a false idea about truth. Like, oh, OK, so Kehende Wiley's in the canon. So we better go and get ourselves a Kehende Wiley. Right. Not what do we have in this collection that supports a Kehende Wiley? What context does the Kehende Wiley enter into when it enters into our collection? Is Kehende Wiley the best of a group of artists working in a similar vein? Artists for us to yeah. have? Yeah. Right. Or do you, so I think all of that was a way of how I approached installing, whether it was acquisition or whether it was exhibition making. Those things were very important to me. So, like when I bought a Carrie James Marshall for Harvard, I didn't just buy any Carrie James Marshall. I bought a Carrie James Marshall that I knew could be in long term dialogue with Max Bexman's self portrait.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Because I knew they weren't going to take that Beckman self-portrait down off the wall anytime soon. And I didn't think they should. So I was trying to buy a work by Carrie that they also couldn't take down.
0: <laughs> right. That make, I mean, that makes so much sense. And I feel like that that sort of helps me unlock why why your shows are so interesting to me and why the shows that have meant a lot to me that I've gone to are interesting to me is because of that, that, that sort of, there is another argument happening here. Just below the surface, you know? Um, I have one more question about this and I apologize. These are very reflexive questions, this, this line of questioning, but, um, you know, I earlier asked you about sort of how curating is a type of writing and you talked about sort of coming from writing, how that, you know, thinking about sentences, how that changes how you install. You, you worked in museums and institutions for, for the better part of, um, of your career. You're independent now, you're doing more writing again, you're doing different types of projects. How, do, how did spending that time in the institutions as a curator, has that changed how you write? Are there now things that you learned from installing that's changing how you're writing sentences?
1: If it's changed the actual nature of the sentences themselves, those you know, as you know, if you write, sentences yeah. are you know, they're tough. Um yeah. 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 and they have logic, you know, you gotta like oh, that's yeah. the that's the grammar of it all, you know, you gotta I'm no poet, you know, I'm not good at breaking yeah. form. Uh <laughs> I'm and I'm not yeah. good at breaking language the way Um, I think poets are. I think that's one of their great jobs is to show us what the words can do. Yeah. Um, I don't have that skill. So, but I do think that one of the things I learned from working so closely and so intimately with art objects for so long is that you can think a lot of things about it, you can think all kinds of stuff about an art object when it's just a JPEG on your computer screen. Mm-hmm. And then when that art object shows up in the space, that art that art object might not behave the way you think it's going to. Mm. So all I right. can kind of make the words behave the way I want them to. Yeah. But I don't always, I don't, I can't always guarantee that I can make the artworks behave the way I want them to. That's there. That's that animistic thing. Again, that's the agency of the art yep. object. Yeah. And that part, that dissonance, that disruption in a kind of seamless presentation of this means this. That I try to let that fundamental antagonism of the object to being discussed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I try to allow some of that to, or I endeavor to let that dissonance, that irritation, that disruption remain in the text in different ways. And that I think makes me different than an academic writer. I think the, in the Academy, like you show that slide year in and year out, you know, you fucking know everything about that work of art, but you might not have ever been in front of that work of art and had it disagree with you.
0: I I wonder if this is a, a way to very briefly bring in the podcast that you did last year, two years ago, death of an artist for Pushkin. Um, Cause I found that, I found that project so fascinating for a variety of reasons. You know, obviously I'm, I'm so interested in podcasts, um, but I don't actually listen to a lot of shows like that, that are sort of narrative, uh, you know, very highly edited sort of mm-hmm. serialized, um, you know, I just I just want two smart people talking to each other, <laughs> usually. Um, but I, I was completely engrossed in, in the series. But I was also interested in sort of how that series fits into your larger body of work, because in many ways, it's very thematically similar to things that you are interested in, going back to the questions you're asking yourself. All of that is in there, even the, you have a line in the first episode about, sort of being in a theory privileged education instead of a feeling privileged education which is sort of what we're talking about here um but i'm wondering if you could talk about the format of that something that is you know really highly narrative something that is serialized something that sort of borders on art history and true crime and storytelling and feminism how did working on that like what did you learn from working on that and thinking about you know sort of telling these stories and talking about about art and these questions that you have about art in a format that's so that feels so wildly different from the essay or the show or the exhibition
1: Mm. in some ways the podcast realm, especially that kind of serial narrativized realm, even though I learned a great deal doing it because I had never done that before. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, it felt really, quote unquote, natural to me. And Mm. it felt natural to me because one of the things I had been trying to do in making shows or installing art in museums was to think about, I had always thought, There are two kinds of people who come here. Artists, I don't need to worry about them. (laughs) All I need to be with them is really smart and really transparent. Right. Everybody else comes here as part of their leisure time. They had the opportunity to go to a movie. This needs to be as good as a movie. It needs Mm -hmm. to be better than a movie. Mm -hmm. It needs to have some kind of narrative hook. They need to be able to leave here. And when someone says to them, what did you do today? They can tell that person a story about what they did, mm. about what they saw. And so I should be giving people stories. Like I was very aware that there was a narrative dimension to art history. And I was also aware that there was a narrative dimension to the art world that's right. basically bar talk. So there's all the serious shit that we did in class. And then we'd go to the bar and that's where you would learn who slept with who, who did what with what, what, what was the power arrangement. And I was always trying to marry those two things in my head. Uh So by the time the podcast rolled around, that made sense to me because I knew that there was always that way that you would sort of drop into storytelling mode. And that was something already I was exploring in the Black Mountain College show. You know, I was mm-hmm. very aware of the role gossip played mm-hmm. in the research process for of making that exhibition. So I, I always had a narrative diven- dimension in that regard. And I'm a 70s radio kid. Mm. I loved the radio. I yeah. always loved the radio. I had a transistor radio. I had one in my bedroom. I had one of those ones that you carried around with you. Yep, yep. So, you know, podcasting might be new, but I just saw it as it's radio. Podcasting is right. just radio. That's right. all it is. And I've been listening to radio, you yeah. know, since elementary school because uh-huh. I I grew up in a home where access to the stereo was highly limited. Mm. so the radio was everything
0: I have two more questions to wrap Shoot. up mm-hmm. um, and it sort of speaks to what you were just talking about actually we started the conversation talking about what questions you were asking 30 years ago that you're still asking now what are the new questions that you're asking now you said you know every question sort of leading to other questions where, where are your interests right now what are, the, what are the sort of the questions that you're engaging with at the moment Hmm. Well,
1: sometimes they're. Hard, sometimes it's hard to know what your question is when you're in the throw of it. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I think, like many white people in this country, I am profoundly aware of the paucity of my education. I'm profoundly aware of how much of what I learned at a very young age was a lie. I'm profoundly aware of what all the omissions mean. I can spot them more clearly now. I can yep. see how the omissions have shaped me more perhaps than the inclusions Mm. that's that's been just a sea change for me because it's very difficult to write around an empty space or a loss or omission. It's very difficult, uh, very difficult game intellectually to play. And it's difficult to play intellectually when the feelings that, accompany it are so layered and imbricated in one another. You know, how how do you separate shame from rage?
0: Mm.
1: How do you articulate love in the face of violence? Mm. So these questions, I think, animate me now, perhaps more than any others and i think the other thing that happens is one does get older and i have found in my middle age i have found the people who say oh you're not middle-aged or you're (laughs) not old age is just a number i thought to myself well that's some bullshit (laughs) (laughs) because i am middle-aged and i am older yeah and it matters and it's different and i think and feel different things now than i used to and part of me is extremely happy that a long time ago i was lucky enough to choose art right uh because it seems to me one of the things that art does really well is age and let you (laughs) age with it
0: yeah yeah
1: and so i feel quite privileged in this regard that i am gonna age with this stuff but you know when i was in my 20s uh I was enthralled with a lot of new art. And then, you know, sometime in my late 30s, early 40s, I started to see, like, oh, that kind of looked, the new stuff show up, looked yeah. like some other stuff I'd seen. Yeah. So I'm on like my third and fourth go around of something, some ideas, <laughs> right. you know, and like that, that's real. And yeah. you got to keep it real with yourself. You can't pretend that you haven't seen it before and you also can't blame people for nah. um coming up with ideas that already are out there cuz there aren't any new ones.
0: Yeah. So that's real too. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say this is a good way to to wrap up, to ask you my last question, but I'm not totally sure that is a good way way to wrap up. (laughs) I I hate to leave that right there. Um, But I will ask you the last question. This is the question I used to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now.
1: Oh, my God. Um, What am I reading right now? Well, one of the things that's happened since the war started is it has really obliterated my reading because all I do is... Mm chase the news, and that's profoundly, profoundly unhealthy. Um, I return uh, in times of war to Walter Benjamin,
0: mm-hmm.
1: who is always someone very interesting to read. But I've also found myself reading in and around a lot of, you know, kind of auto fiction. Mm, yeah. You know, um yeah. Magda Sasbo, Elena Ferrante, Tove Dietlutzen. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. There's a certain kind of you know, I've been reading some, you know, Marguerite de Raw. There's a certain mm, kind mm-hmm. of woman writer who's trying to figure out how to get it down on the page, Jean, you know, Jean Reese, you know, just really looking at these women who were confronting the most intense sexism and classism and found in writing their own story, uh, but a fictionalized account Mm -hmm. of their story. Yeah. That is a a place where I've been reading in a way that feels productive to me.
0: Yeah. I I love that. I think in many ways your your book is doing something similar. It's a way to for you to sort of, you know, wrestle with these things and try to figure out I forget the exact way you phrase it, figure out a way to put it down on the page. Your book is called Open Questions, 30 Years of Writing About Art. I have so many more questions that I could ask you. I feel like we could talk forever. This was such a a lovely conversation. Helen, thanks for being on the show.
1: Jared, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thanks for your interest in the work. It's wonderful.
0: And that was my conversation with Helen Walsworth. Her new book is Open Questions, 30 Years of Writing About Art. Our theme music is by Jeremiah Chu. The show is and always will be free thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you like what we're doing, I hope you consider supporting us and get some bonus content each month. You can follow us across social media at Surface Podcast, and you can listen to all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.